One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As usual, I have a few startup podcast notices to dish out. First of all, those of you who follow my Facebook page may have noticed that I cryptically mentioned that I'd recorded a guest episode for another podcast. I can now reveal that it was for the wonderful Renaissance English History Podcast. As you may have noticed, we are charging into that era. Indeed, in the last show about Elizabeth Woodville, we briefly entered it. As you all know, after Queen's, my next favourite topic is medieval mistresses, and so I decided to follow up on the episode on Alice Perez that I did for this show, and Jane Shaw that I did for the History of England, by covering one for the Renaissance English History Podcast, made by the wonderful Heather Tesco. I chose to talk about Bessie Blount, one of Henry VIII's most famous and important mistresses. While doing it, I caught controversy by calling out a lot of past scholarship as being wrong, and who doesn't love that? I'll post a link on the Facebook page when the episode is posted, and also in the show notes for this one, though it may not appear when this episode first airs. Second, I wanted to thank the latest donators to my show on Patreon, Michelle from San Francisco in the US, and Connor from Wexford in Ireland. Their support is so welcome to the show, as are the very generous reviews on iTunes that I've been receiving recently. If you would like to shack a few quid my way to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, or if you've already done so or money is tight, then maybe leave a review on iTunes. Whatever you do, your continued support is massively appreciated. As usual, if you want to ask me anything, notice any glaring errors that I make, or just want to get in touch to say how wonderful I am, then there are a number of ways to do so. The email address is queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. There's the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, where I post episodes and any other podcast-related news. There's my rather neglected but still there Twitter page, at Queens Podcast, and my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. Finally, this is the final instalment in the sort of Wars of the Roses section of the Queens of England Podcast. In this episode, we have to go back yet again to the 1460s and 70s. We've been in that decade now with Margaret of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville, and Anne Neville, and so I really won't be going over it again in much detail. Therefore, if you haven't already done so, I would recommend that you at the very least go back and listen to the series on Elizabeth Woodville before taking in this episode, as it provides some much-needed background. If you don't care about such things because you're just so darn mavericky, or if you've already listened to them then keep on listening. You may also notice that this episode is a little bit shorter than you have become used to in recent months. This is because I will be giving you the story of Elizabeth of York in two parts. The first one recaps her early life and covers her first year or so as queen. The next will cover the rest of her reign and her legacy. To all new listeners the show, welcome. To my long-term listeners, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 34, Elizabeth of York, The White Rose and the Red. 
rather magnificent piece was the Hastings College Choir singing the classic nursery rhyme Sing a Song of Sixpence, which has been around for centuries. While there are many arguments about its origins, one of the most popular is that it is about Henry VII and the subject of this episode, Elizabeth of York. Elizabeth has been a bit part character in the last three episodes of the Queens of England podcast. In episode 31, I talked about her birth and the great ceremony that accompanied her mother's journey from heavily pregnant woman to young mother. In episode 32, we saw Elizabeth sheltering with her mother and siblings in Westminster Abbey while her uncle Richard set about usurping her brother's throne, and then purging the kingdom of her relatives, including executing a bunch of them, including Uncle Rivers. I then talked a little bit about her relationship with her mother post-Bosworth. In the last show, episode 33, we saw her becoming a target of gossip as rumours swirled about her possibly becoming the second wife of her uncle Richard. Despite this, I think it's important to build up a complete picture of Elizabeth's life in this episode up to where we left her, so that's what we shall do. She was born in 1466 as the first of a whole bunch of children born to Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV. Her early life was dominated by the various factions flying around the first reign of her father, as the Woodvilles and the factions surrounding Warwick battled it out. A theme of Elizabeth's life is that she will always be seen as this unifying figure. This is a very important role for the eldest daughter of any nobleman to fill, someone for a father to marry off to a rival to cement a peace, or an ally to secure an alliance. Age three, it was a bit of both here, as she was betrothed to George Neville, the eight-year-old nephew of Warwick. As part of this deal, the child was made Duke of Bedford, a very important noble title, showing that this was a match that all parties were committed to. This alliance was designed to bind Warwick and Edward together, but, of course, in 1470, Warwick made his alliance with Margaret, invaded, overthrew Edward, etc., etc., which, among many other things, ended that proposed marriage. Elizabeth spent the re-adeption period safely ensconced with her mother and siblings in Westminster Abbey, where she would have possibly been present at the birth of her eldest brother, Edward. This would not have been a high point in her life, as what was effectively a big fancy monastery was no place for a child to grow up in. But of course, it was only six months' stay, as Edward would free his wife and kids when he retook London in April 1471. After that, Elizabeth returned to her life as a princess, which of course meant that she re-entered the marriage market. 
If you remember from a previous episode, the Queen was keen to bring Elizabeth along to big diplomatic events, along with the Prince of Wales, and this was clearly so that she could be introduced to ambassadors and visiting nobles who would be able to wax lyrical about England's beautiful and eminently suitable unmarried princess. The next attempt to marry her off came in 1475, where a marriage was agreed in the Treaty of Piquigny between Elizabeth and the French Dauphin Charles. This was a deal struck between Edward and the French king Louis XI, whereby Edward agreed to withdraw his invading army from France and give up his claims on French lands in exchange for a whole lot of gold. As was traditional, the agreement would be cemented by the marriage of their children, and so for the next seven years or so, Elizabeth began preparing to become the next Queen of France. Elizabeth's childhood, the six-month holiday camp in Westminster Abbey notwithstanding, was a very happy one. She appears to have been a great lover of singing and dancing, and would maintain a great appreciation of music into her adult life. She rode often, and would love to spectate her male relatives on hunting trips. No doubt in the less patriarchal time, she would have enjoyed shooting the arrows in the hunt herself. The agreement to Charles would have made it more crucial than ever that she work on her French, though it seems that both she and her sister Cecily were very accomplished linguists, becoming fluent in French as well as accomplished in Latin. When Elizabeth left her childhood when she reached the age of 12, she was finally of an age where she could marry the Dauphin, but it was here that troubles began to emerge. When Edward demanded her dowry from King Louis, the French king decided to stall, play for time, and generally drag his feet about the whole thing. It is not for nothing that Louis is known to history as the Universal Spider. He was not to be trusted. It took another two years before a delegation was sent to England to finalise the details, but he still planned to shaft Edward on the dowry, so now Edward began to ignore Louis' calls, which only made everything worse. Eventually, the inevitable happened. Louis double-crossed Edward by marrying the Dauphin to the daughter of the Duke of Burgundy in December 1482. By 1483, then, Elizabeth had already been promised to two men only for the actions of her future husband's relatives to end the marriages before any vows had been made or rings exchanged. That said, she had nothing to complain about her early life. All sources are in agreement that the court of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville was a great place to be. This is best shown in the Cronin Chronicle, which states, quote, In those days you might have seen a royal court as befitted a mighty kingdom, filled with riches and men from almost every nation, and, surpassing all else, with the handsome and most delightful children born of the marriage to Queen Elizabeth. 1483, though, was a horrible, no-good, crappy year for Elizabeth, and I'm sure that you don't need me to remind you why. She was back where she had been 12 years before, stuck in Westminster Abbey with her mum and siblings, but this time there was no father building an army to save her, because her father was dead. There was no king on her side, because he was elbowed out and killed while still a child. Her uncle Richard was in charge, and his only interest was securing his position and dealing with threats. Elizabeth, her mother and her sisters, were threats, and that made this sanctuary far more dangerous than their last. This was, of course, why her mother made one last throw of the dice, her involvement in Buckingham's rebellion. Again, I went through all this in a previous episode, but if you remember, this was a plot hatch between Buckingham, Elizabeth Woodville, and Margaret Beaufort to remove Richard III from power and replace him with Henry Tudor, who would marry Elizabeth. There is no evidence to suggest that Henry and Elizabeth had ever met up to this point. Then again, what's new about that? The extent to which this match had nothing to do with any connection that the two might have had with each other comes in Polydor Virgil's account of Elizabeth Woodville's part in the bargain. 
she, quote, would do her endeavour to procure all her husband, King Edward's friends, to take part with Henry, so that he might be sword to take in marriage Elizabeth, her daughter, after he shall have gotten the realm, or else Cecily, the younger daughter, if the other should die before he enjoyed the same. This match was just about survival, nothing more. Of course, for now, it came to nothing, as the rebellion failed, and Henry Tudor was forced to flee back to Brittany. Elizabeth was now 17, and this meant that she was of an age where she really should have been on the road to marriage, but right now, her ranking on the marriage hit list was hovering somewhere around zero. The match with Henry Tudor was dead, and it seemed very unlikely that his claim on the throne would ever be realised. Titulus Regius made her a bastard daughter of a discredited king. She was little better than a Lancastrian, and she had no land or title to fall back on, and neither did her mother. Indeed, the main reason why Elizabeth Woodfield did her deal with the devil and agreed with Richard to leave her sanctuary was to secure the futures of her daughters. Landless women were dependent on others to survive. They couldn't just, like, get a job. They had nothing. Elizabeth Woodville's deal with Richard was explicitly dependent on him attaining good marriages for the Woodville girls. Between her release from Westminster Abbey and Bosworth, Elizabeth seems to have spent quite a bit of time at court, And of course, if you remember from the last episode, she attracted a fair bit of attention when Anne Neville began her death spiral. And rumours began to spread that King Richard was considering marrying her, forcing her uncle to vehemently deny that he wants to have marital relations with that woman. Now I scattered over this in the Anne Neville episode, but it is worth covering this in a little more detail here. The reasons for why Richard might want to marry Elizabeth are obvious. She was young, capable of bearing children, and marrying her would prevent Henry Tudor from winning her hand. The obstacles were equally obvious. He was already married, though not for long as it turned out, and he was her uncle, which raised all sorts of legal and moral obstacles. Whether this was Richard's intention is not entirely clear, but it is worth thinking about what Elizabeth's reaction to all of this might have been. It is taken for granted that she would have been disgusted by the match, that she would have been forced into it, but there is some evidence to suggest that this might not be the case. For a start, she was her mother's daughter, and Woodville's were nothing if not pragmatic marriers. Yes, Richard could well have been her brother's murderer, and, if nothing else, he had usurped his throne. He had killed a load of her family, and was the reason she was no longer a princess. But he was also her ticket back to the big leagues. He could make her a queen. Yes, she was technically promised to Henry Tudor, but he would probably never be king. Richard was already a king. Yes, he was her uncle, but that kind of a marriage was not unheard of at the time, though it was rare and frowned upon. The Tudor version of this story, best espoused by Polydor Virgil, has her virtually vomiting at the prospect of marrying Richard. Quote, to such a marriage, the girl had a singular aversion. Weighed down for this reason by her great grief, she would repeatedly exclaim, saying, I will not be married, but unhappy creature that I am, will rather suffer all the torments which St. Catherine is said to have endured for the love of Christ than be united with a man who is the enemy of my family. Now, this is all rather suspect, as it paints Elizabeth rather too perfectly. It has her associating herself with the most famous female Christian martyred princess, and given the time in which it was written, this must be read with extreme prejudice. On the other end of the scale, there is a letter which may or may not be authentic, from Elizabeth to Thomas Howard, the so-called Buck Letter, which states that she was very keen to marry Richard, claimed that she, quote, was his in heart and in thoughts. However, this letter is very heavily fire-damaged, and so frankly it is hard to make out much of any of it, 
using it as the basis of Elizabeth being in love with Richard is fraught with risk. For what it's worth, I think that even if had things gone down differently, Richard would not have married Elizabeth, but it certainly isn't out of the question. After Richard's forced public denial of his desire to have marital relations with that woman, Elizabeth was packed off to Sheriff Hutton until the storm died down, and so was absent from the action when Henry Tudor launched his second invasion, won the throne on the field of Bosworth, becoming the first Tudor king. Now, if you remember from episode 32, Henry's most important move in his first weeks as king was to plan his marriage to Elizabeth. This was part of his clever plan to unite the kingdom and attempt to end the period of civil strife that we remember as the Wars of the Roses. Remember that just because we know that the Tudor regime ended the conflict doesn't mean that this was clear at the time. There was no guarantee that Henry's kingship would be any more successful than Edward V's or Richard III's. One of his primary problems was that his claim to the throne was incredibly weak. It was transmitted bound both a bastard line and female line. Not only did his mother have a better claim to the throne than him, but one could argue that his future wife's claim was better, at least by blood. England had no version of the French Salic law which banned female inheritance to the throne. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It is not inconceivable that if Elizabeth of York had had a little more Empress Matilda in her, then she might have made a play for the throne herself. As we will see, this is something that Henry was concerned about, but the fact is, he needed her desperately. One of Henry's first moves was to repeal Titulus Regius, re-legitimising Elizabeth of York and her siblings, and also to send for her to return to London from Sheriff Hutton. According to the Tudor historian Polydor Virgil, upon being told of Henry's victory at Bosworth, she exclaimed, quote, so even at last thou hast, O God, regarded the humble and not despised their prayers. I well remember that my most noble father of famous memory meant to have bestowed me in marriage upon this most comely prince. Oh, that I were worthy of him, for, as I have lost my father and protector, I sorely fear me that he will take a wife from foreign parts whose beauty, age, fortune and dignity will please him more than mine." Now, of course, this is fantastically overblown, but there is no doubt that Elizabeth needed Henry almost as much as he needed her. She had spent her entire life so far promised to various men without success, and her recent years were as uncertain as a noble girl's fortune could have ever found. 
At the age of 19, she was hardly a spinster, but equally it was clearly time for her to get married, given how young most well-born girls tended to tie the knot. Henry needed Elizabeth to secure his kingdom. Elizabeth needed him to become a queen. The sentiments about the marriage are best expressed in the final scene of Shakespeare's Richard III. Now, I'm sure you're getting rather sick of my constant quoting of Shakespeare, but believe me, I have been holding back, as I absolutely love the Wars of the Roses plays, and none more so than Richard III. Sadly, old Bill's relationship with the truth and fact is loose to say the least, but hey, he was a dramatist. It wasn't his job to be writing documentaries. Anyway, for the last time, maybe, I will indulge myself in a little Shakespeare. This is from the final speech of Richard III, and takes place at Bosworth, where Henry, who is referred to with his noble title of Earl of Richmond, expresses his hopes for the future. Now, at this point, I'd love to put in a bit of audio, but unfortunately, this bit is often abridged or even omitted from productions of the play, so I will try and do it justice myself. Proclaim a pardon to the soldiers fled, that in submission will return to us. And then, as we obtain sacrament, we will unite the white rose and the red. Smell heaven upon this fair conjecture, that long have frowned upon their enmity. What traitor hears me and says not Amen? England hath long been mad and scarred herself. The brother blindly shed the brother's blood. The father rashly slaughtered his own son. The son compelled been butcher to the sire. All this divided York and Lancaster, divided in their dire division. Oh, now let Richmond and Elizabeth, the true succeeders of each royal house, by God's fair ordinance, conjoined together, and let their heirs, God, if thy will, be so. Enrich the time to come with smooth-faced peace, with smiling plenty and fair, prosperous days. Abate the edge of traitors, gracious Lord, that would reduce thy bloody days again, and make poor England weep in streams of blood. Let them not live to taste this land's increase, that would treason wound this fair land's peace. Now civil wounds are stopped, Peace lives again, that long may she live here. God say amen. This was the vision for the future that Henry wished to promote, and indeed it was more or less what happened. This was going to be the union of the two warring houses. They were the two heirs of York and Lancaster, which meant that their children would be the true inheritors of both competing claims. The strife that had engulfed England for 30 years could end with the union of Henry and Elizabeth. She was escorted to London by a great company of lords and ladies in a great public procession. She was lodged with Henry's mother when she arrived in the capital, and there she was reunited with her mother, Elizabeth Woodville, and anxiously waited for her crown. As I've said before, it is very possible that the two had never met, and so it was important for the future man and wife to be introduced. There is no reliable description of their meeting, but it was likely a very formal occasion with plenty of people there to witness it. The man that Elizabeth met was a tall, handsome Welshman. He is described as being quick-witted and cheerful, which may surprise you given the historical caricature of a grumpy, miserly old man. That would all come later. But, and this is a big but, while Elizabeth represented the key piece in Henry's plan to entrench his regime, she was also someone who could wreck it overnight. Now that Edward IV had no surviving sons, Elizabeth, as his eldest daughter, theoretically could be a threat to Henry. Indeed, if you'll forgive a bit of a tangent, if this had occurred a couple of centuries later, we could have ended up with a joint monarchy, as this all bears a resemblance to events that would occur 200 years later in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. The popular King Charles II had died, and was replaced by his unpopular brother James II. 
He was then overthrown after an invasion by William of Orange, whose claim to the throne was based almost entirely on his marriage to Mary Stuart, who was the daughter of the said unpopular king. Now, William did have a claim to the throne, but it was very weak, far weaker indeed than that of his wife. Therefore, they ruled together as both king and queen regnant, the only time in English history that this had ever occurred. While the circumstances of the overthrow were different in this situation, there are some big similarities, and if things had played out differently, then maybe we could have had England's first joint monarchy in the 15th century. That this did not happen is down to Henry's actions in the next few months. The first thing he did was get himself crowned, which he did in October 1485, in a ceremony that was full of glitz and glamour, but crucially did not include Elizabeth of York. Being crowned next to her would have sent out all the wrong messages about joint monarchy. Indeed, she was not even invited to the ceremony, with the place of honour next to the king being given to his mother, Margaret Beaufort. The signal was clear. You will be my queen, but all power rests with me. It was only after this great ceremony had taken place that he began to plan his marriage to Elizabeth. Note that I said marriage there, not coronation. Having the two occur at the same time would again promote her position too greatly, would make her seem more important than he needed her to be. This would be the King of England marrying the daughter and niece of his former enemy to unite the kingdom. This was not a daughter of a king being crowned as queen. This is made clear in the announcement of the plan to marry made by the Speaker of the House of Commons, who said, with the King present, that he wished, quote, to take for himself as wife and consort the noble Lady Elizabeth, daughter of King Edward IV, from which marriage by the grace of God, it is hoped by many that there will arise offspring of the race of kings for the comfort of the whole realm. He went on to say that the succession, quote, remains, continues and endures in the person of the Lord King and of the heirs legitimately issuing from his body. Again here, while it does acknowledge that Elizabeth had the blood of a king flowing through her veins, this was only important insofar as it recommended her as a queen. The legitimacy of their children to rule would come from him and him alone. This was a very difficult diplomatic balancing act, but one that was crucial to the consolidation of Henry's power. The date of the wedding was set for the 18th of January 1486, some three months after Henry's coronation. The month before, Elizabeth was named Duchess of York, which was a really rather clever move, because it would please Yorkist sympathisers at court, but of course, it meant that Henry would effectively control the wealth of this very rich and powerful duchy. As is now ubiquitous, they had to get papal dispensation, as they were related in the fourth degree, though, frankly, by contemporary standards, that made them positively genetic strangers. In his appeal to Pope Innocent VIII, Henry instructed his emissary to say, quote, The beauty and chastity of this lady are indeed so great that neither Lucrezia nor Diana herself were ever more beautiful or more chaste. These were figures from Roman mythology, with Lucrezia being a famous symbol of innocence and submission, Diana being the goddess of chastity. It continues, quote, So great is her virtue and her character so fine that she certainly seems to have been preserved by divine will from the time of her birth right up to today to be consort and queen. It is unsurprising here that in an appeal to his holiness that Henry emphasises Elizabeth's pious quantities, but it is interesting to note that he doesn't mention her noble birth, again downplaying it to shore up his own credentials. The dispensation was readily granted, and so the wedding could now finally take place. It was presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and surprisingly given the importance of the ceremony, there is no detailed account of what took place. 
suggesting that once again Henry was keeping things on the down low. One thing that does survive, though, is the epithalamium written by the papal legate Giovanni de Gili. This was almost certainly written in advance of the ceremony, so it can't be seen as an accurate record, but it was designed to serve as the official record, which still makes it important for us. It was written in Latin hexameter, and so much of the flow is apparently lost in the English translation, but here it is anyway. In it, we get a good, if no doubt very flattering, description of Elizabeth, the attire in which she would be wed, and what it all meant. Quote, Put on your legal robes in loveliness, a thousand fair attendants round you wait, of various ranks with different offices, to deck your beauteous form. Lo, this delights to smooth with ivory comb your hair, that to curl or braid each shiny tress, and wreath the sparkling jewels round your head, twining your locks with gems. This one shall clasp the radiant necklace framed in fretted gold about your snowy neck, while that unfolds the robes that glow with gold and purple dye, and fits the ornaments with patient skill to your unrivalled limbs. And here shall shine the costly treasures from the Orient sands, the sapphire, azure gem that emanates heaven's lofty arch, shall gleam, and softly there the verdant emerald shed its greenest light, and fiery carbuncle flash forth rosy rays from the pure gold. There is a lot going on there. First of all, it does a good job of making this seem a big occasion, which makes it all the more surprising that really there is no record of it. It also talks a lot about Elizabeth's beauty, and, as is normal in this period, links beauty and piety, saying that the richness of her clothing and jewellery, coupled with her physical beauty, is a sign of divine blessing and favour. Elizabeth would have to wait a fair amount of time for her coronation, as both she and Henry had important business to attend to. Henry had to continue his consolidation of power and face down numerous rebellions, starting with the Stafford Brothers' uprising and then the more serious invasion by the Irish lords in support of Lambert Simnel, who was pretending to be the Earl of Warwick. Elizabeth had an equally important job in this period. She was pregnant. As I said in the last episode, the Woodvilles were nothing if not extraordinarily productive mothers, and so it was not long before Elizabeth had accomplished the prime imperative of queenship, a son. He was born in September 1486 after a long and very dangerous birth that nearly claimed his mother's life. He was named Arthur, after the legendary King of England who united a warring kingdom in the face of civil strife. I can't imagine why the name appealed to them. The crushing of these rebellions and the birth of a healthy son and heir finally persuaded Henry in the autumn of 1487 that it was time to crown his queen. Elizabeth had been the first uncrowned queen to bear an heir while on the throne since the Norman Conquest, and so really it could not be delayed any longer. This was to be a grand occasion, even grander than the rather hastily enraged coronation of Henry himself, and a far more public occasion than Elizabeth's marriage. It would follow much of the template for a queenly coronation that we have come to expect. Sleep over the tower, state entry to the city, and then trip to Westminster Palace, before coronation at the Abbey, and then a feast back at the palace. Elizabeth was conveyed to the tower in a, quote, flotilla of boats freshly furnished with banners and streamers of silk. There was music and a huge crowd on the banks of the river. I won't describe to you the procession that led Elizabeth the next day from the tower to Westminster because it is too similar to the ones I have read to you before. The coronation itself took place on the 25th November and saw Elizabeth dressed all in purple, the royal colour, furred with ermine and gold and decked out in jewels. Henry himself did not publicly attend. He was finally willing to give his wife the limelight. 
There again was a huge crowd, so great in fact that a number were killed in a horrific crush as people surged forward to cut off pieces of the carpet that she had just walked on. When she arrived at the Abbey, she was led in by a great procession very similar to the one that her mother, Elizabeth Woodville, had been led in by over two decades before. Once again, it was a ceremony led by the Archbishop of Canterbury and saw her anointed with the holy oil, given the coronation ring and receiving the scepter and rod. The coronation section of the ceremony followed a playbook that had been in use since 1399 and ended with her having a crown placed upon her head by the Archbishop. Then the coronation celebrated Mass, after which everyone exclaimed, God save King Henry, wheresoever he be, and for Queen Elizabeth now pray we, and for all her noble progeny, God save the Church of Christ from any folly, and for Queen Elizabeth now pray we. I'm going to leave Elizabeth's story there for this week. Before I go, though, I'd like to do some follow-up from my last episode. I received a couple of emails, though the first and best was from listener Pim from Thailand, about Anne Neville's funeral and burial. After saying some very nice things about the show, she wrote, I am particularly interested in your latest Anne Neville episode. As proud Yorkist scum, I have always found Anne intriguing because there is so little information out there about her. I really enjoyed your take on her life, but I was really interested in the point you made about us not knowing where Anne is buried. However, I am under the impression that Richard gave her a funeral befitting a queen and that she is buried at Westminster Abbey. Am I mistaken? Well, first of all, I would like to say that I never called Yorkists scum. That would be rude and wrong. I merely call them rebel scum. Important difference. Mainly because I like Yorkshire and would like to return there soon and not get lynched. On the question of the funeral and burial, I did rather rush through it in the last show, but really there isn't that much to tell. It was probably at Westminster Abbey, but that is only a guess. This is because she died in Westminster, and it was the logical place to do it. The place where her grave is believed to lie was unmarked until 1960, when the good people of the Rich III Society arranged for a plaque to be put up. But, again, it is very possible that she may be buried someplace else. With regard to her funeral, I have looked at the books in the Bodleian Library where I do my research, and none that I have read have much of anything to say about her funeral. But a little further digging does suggest that she may well have had the fittingly magnificent funeral that Pym describes. I just didn't come across it in the books I read. It certainly is likely that Richard would have sought to promote the memory of his beloved wife, and I certainly hope that she got the send-off she deserved. That's all for this week. Next time, I will look at the reign of Elizabeth of York now that she and her husband Henry were more safely ensconced on the throne. A kindly, conventional queen, Elizabeth would stay very much in the shadow of her husband, but that did not mean that she did not make her mark during this genesis of the Tudor dynasty. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.